Test one, two, test one, two, new closet. It's History This Week. I'm Sally Helm, and this is me settling in to record an episode of this very podcast. Okay. There are some shirts hanging in my face. I think we can deal with this. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, History This Week has been almost fully recorded in closets. Closets that are not always totally quiet. Plane going over, car going by. Sorry, there's a gate opening outside. Sorry, Namal's singing. Let me just... That last one was me asking my poor boyfriend to stop singing in the kitchen. He and I spent the beginning of the pandemic together in Brooklyn. Then in July, we came out to California to stay with my family. I had to ask them not to run any faucets while we're recording because you can hear the water in the walls. Let me just text everyone and see if they're running a faucet. My poor family. Okay. All right. Um, great. Podcasting in 2020 is very glamorous and very annoying for anyone that you happen to live with. Of course, in a normal episode, we cut all that out. We also cut our two-hour interviews down to fit in 20 minutes. And a lot of what gets left out is just me waiting for planes to stop flying over. But some of it is fascinating, crazy information that we just didn't have time to tell you. And so today, it's a History This Week bonus. We've just wrapped up season one of the show. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode and a very special guest to kick off season two. But this week, in a year-end behind-the-scenes extravaganza, our producers McKamey, Julie, and Ben, and our researcher Emma will join me on the show to tell us what didn't make it in to their favorite episodes of the year. We'll talk about how the Inca got along without money, how one episode sent one of our producers on a journey through her own family's history— and what the astronauts of Apollo 13 would have learned if they had actually made it to the moon. Stay tuned for the very best stuff you didn't hear this season. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. First up, we have our producer, McKamey. Hello, McKamey. Hey, Sally. McKamey, when you told me what episode you were doing for this show, I was very much not surprised <laughs> because you are obsessed with space. I think we can agree. Indeed. And perhaps appropriately, you have brought us some extra information about our episode on Apollo 13, the NASA mission that was trying to go to the moon. There was an explosion. The astronauts had to scramble to get safely back to Earth. And we interviewed Captain Jim Lovell, who was on that mission. Yes. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I have always loved space. I had this very cool teacher, Mrs. Mason, who showed us the movie Apollo 13 and I think my third grade class. And ever since then, I've been pretty obsessed with space. So obviously, when the opportunity came to interview Captain Jim Lovell, it was like, it was like you told a sports fan they could interview Michael Jordan or something. <laughs> you were, you lost your mind. 
I lost my mind. I called my dad. I called my mom. I called my brother. I called my brother's wife. It was big (laughs) news in my household. I just want to add one more thing about this episode, which is that our interview with Captain Lovell was the first one, I think the first one that we recorded during New York City's COVID-19 lockdown. And I just remember that interview being like a little surreal. Yeah, it was absolutely surreal. COVID had just started. I was stuck in my apartment and I was listening to this tape as we were putting it together of these three guys stuck in a spaceship on the wrong side of the moon. And so it gave me this really nice perspective. I don't know about you, but it gave me a really nice perspective that like my apartment is a little bit bigger than a spaceship and everything is going to be okay. Yeah, it was so nice to think about space at a time like that. And I mean, that episode, it was like a very nice distraction during a scary COVID time, partly because we weren't just talking about history. We were also having to think through all these scientific questions, like like how does a spaceship work? Yes. And so in order to be as prepared as possible for the Lovell interview, we did a whole other interview that didn't make it into the show. Hi, this is John Urey, and I work at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And one thing in particular that I wish we'd had time to get into in the episode is exactly why Apollo 13 was going to the moon in the first place. And Yuri told us they were going to find out the origins of the moon itself, which is pretty crazy to think about. So interesting place. Uh, the current theory is that it formed when something collided with the Earth long, a long time ago and, and the moon just kind of split off and went into orbit around the Earth. Yeah, I don't think I knew that going into this interview or didn't remember it, that the moon is a chunk of the Earth, probably, that got chipped off by a meteor like a couple billion years ago. Fascinating, right? So Apollo 13 was trying to find out more about the origins of the moon, but they obviously got sidetracked by the whole explosion thing. And so then Apollo 14 went up right behind them and basically finished that mission. So we do know some of the information that Apollo 13 went up there to find out. And what did they find? So most of what they did is very in-depth scientific stuff. But uh, one of the things that they brought up there was a seismometer, which is to measure for moonquakes, just like earthquakes on Earth. Moonquakes! Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And they measured thousands of moonquakes. And all that data sort of helped them understand the interior of the moon. But literally one of the biggest things they found up there was Big Bertha. Uh, did you mention uh, either a thin or white boulder or a, uh, a brown, uh, brownish-gray uh, boulder earlier? That is Fred Hayes, who was Apollo 13's lunar module pilot, and he's now mission control for 14. Oh, Fred. I wouldn't touch the Apollo program again if I were him, but he stuck <laughs> it out and helped out the 14 guys who find this rock up there, this big Bertha, And the crazy thing is, last year, these scientists were looking at Big Bertha, and in the rock, they found this little chip that they think is from Earth. Wait, wait, but isn't the whole moon part of Earth? Like, it broke off Earth billions of years ago? Yeah, exactly. So at first, it doesn't seem that surprising, but it turns out that this particular chip is from about half a billion years after the moon was formed. Mm. But it's still really old as far as Earth rocks go. In fact, it's one of the oldest we have. So it gives scientists a lot of insight into our own planet. Wait a second. Well, how did it get there? Was it aliens? Be honest with me. I want it to be so badly. So science is obviously just figuring this out. And it's just a theory at this point that like 4 billion years ago, there was this period of time called like the Great Bombardment or the last big bombardment. 
which is essentially when Earth was getting pelted with asteroids and meteors all the time. And they think that this little rock chipped off, got sent out to the moon, which was, by the way, three times closer to Earth at that point in time, and just stayed there and didn't come back until these guys found it. Wow. And then that little piece of Earth, like, hitched a ride home. Exactly. I like to think that Big Bertha made a safe return, which, when we're thinking about the Apollo 13 story, is pretty appropriate. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, McKamey. Thank you. Next up today, we have our producer, Julie. Hello, Julie. Hello, Sally. How are you? I'm doing great. So, Julie, when we first started this podcast back in January, way back in January, I remember there was one episode that month that was really, really important to you. Tell us about that. Yes. So, I picked this episode, and I actually bargained my fellow producer, McKamey, to do this episode. To produce it, yeah. Yes, because it meant so much to me. Uh, It was the episode we did about the Holocaust, Surviving Auschwitz. And that's because I actually have a personal family connection to the history of the Holocaust. And when we had to sit down to look back at 2020, I actually wanted to talk to my mom about this episode again. Okay, we're recording. Let's do a quick mic check. You want to tell me what you're drinking right now? I'm having a glass of wine. This is the under $20 bottle. (laughs) Julie, that is your mom. Yes, the one and only. So tell me about your family connection to this story. What did you guys talk about? So I sat down to talk with my mom about my grandfather, her dad, and his brother, because they were Jewish, living in Czechoslovakia in 1939. My grandfather was a doctor, and at the beginning, his side of Czechoslovakia was not German-occupied. The other side was. But it was only a matter of time before that was going to change. Slowly, things got more and more restricted for Jews. And then one night, one of my father's patients came to my father and said, Joe, your name is up in the town center. That You need to report in to the command for duty. And my father knew that at this point, if he did report in, they'd take him away and he'd probably be finished. Wow, how terrifying to hear. What, what did they do? So at that point, they knew they had to escape, but traveling while Jewish was dangerous. So a friend of my grandfather's, her name was Georgette Klinger, she actually helped them get papers, uh, forged papers, so that they could travel. And they come up with this cover story, because that was necessary, that basically they had to travel for my great uncle's health, and my grandfather had to take care of him. He was the doctor. And my father and his brother packed a little bag as if they were just going for a long you know, weekend or a couple of days, and said goodbye to his mother at home, and his father walked them to the station, and they pretended like they would, you know, we'll see you soon, and then they got on the train, and then they never saw their parents again. And as for his parents, they were sent to a work camp and eventually perished. Wow. Yeah. So I was thinking of their story while I was doing research for this episode, and I came upon another story happening almost at the exact same time, but on the other side of the country, the side that was occupied at the time. And it's about a man named Nicholas Winton, who was essentially a lesser-known person doing what Oscar Schindler did, we know from Schindler's List, and he arranged these heroic rescues and escapes from Czechoslovakia. I actually read all of this in a New York Times article. It was fascinating. Yeah, we'll drop a link to that in the episode notes. But so, okay, Nicholas Winton, tell me about him. So 
he was German Jewish by descent, but his parents actually had converted to Christianity, so he was safe. He ended up saving the lives of some 669 children, mostly Jewish, from Czechoslovakia beginning in 1939. And he was actually one of the only people doing this work in Czechoslovakia at the time. He worked with other volunteers to secretly coordinate trains to get children out of the German-occupied part of Czechoslovakia. They had to arrange for things like forged papers and bribes, foster homes, and of course, a lot of money. Yeah, where did the money come from? How did they do that? Winton actually himself paid for a lot, like for the children whose parents were killed or had to flee. He also had donors. Sometimes the children's parents would sell their things to pay for passage. I mean, money had to come from everywhere. And I mean, I imagine like even if they figure that out, there's a lot of other roadblocks in their way, a lot of difficulties. Mm-hmm. No question. I mean, the Gestapo was watching closely. Winton bribed some of them, actually. And those people were ironically key to getting these trains through. Well, yeah, the Gestapo members who he had sort of gotten to his side through a bribe. Absolutely, which is kind of crazy to think about. And the first 20 children escaped on a train from Prague just hours before Hitler claimed two Czech provinces. Wow. After that, Winton arranged for eight more trains. Sometimes the children were transferred to boat, and the children eventually made it to London. And with them, all they had was a small bag and a name tag. Wow, yeah. I mean, it's really intense to think how disorienting that must have been to just be a child and land in a totally new place mm-hmm. without your parents. Maybe you don't speak the language. Absolutely. So as horrible, obviously, as this whole thing is, their lives were saved, uh, with the exception, unfortunately, of the last train, the ninth train, which had 250 children on it. That train, which left on September 1st, 1939, left the station but was never seen again, nor the children on it. Oh, man. That day, Hitler invaded Poland and all German-controlled borders were then closed. But for the children that were saved, according to this article, many of them are still alive today, and now they're in their 70s and 80s. Apparently, they still remember what Winton did for them, and they call themselves Winton's children. But he never actually told anyone about his work. It was only in 1988 when his wife found a bunch of papers and records of these children in their house that the story came out. Wow, his wife didn't even know. No, his wife didn't know. But his wife took these papers to a Holocaust historian, which then attracted the attention of the BBC, and then the rest is history. Wow, so now many years after he did this work, he's getting recognition for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Julie, thank you so much for telling us this story. You're welcome, Sally. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next up today, we have our producer, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sally. Ben, this whole bonus episode concept is really in your wheelhouse because you always have material that you want to put into the episodes that you are devastated we have to leave out. And so today the floor is yours. Tell me more about the complex, fascinating Inca empire. Yeah, Sally, I do uh, love those details. And I knew very little of them about the Inca empire going into this episode. Um, But, I mean, first of all, just how big it was. So you're talking about, I mean, we don't know an exact number, but somewhere in the 10 to 15 million person range, right? So that's somewhere on the same order of magnitude at the time as the Ottoman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire. And it's actually bigger than the Spanish Empire, who, of course, would end up conquering the Inca. Right. And one kind of amazing thing that I remember from that episode is that information is crisscrossing that huge empire, but it's not being written down. The Inca did not use written language. Exactly. They had no writing. Instead, they used what were called kipu, which were like these series of knotted cords that were arranged in different sequences and the cords' material, color, thickness, length, and and for the knots themselves, the shape, the direction of the knots, the placement of the knots— all conveyed different kinds of information that needed to be recorded. Right, and researchers still are trying to figure out what information is coded into them on all those axes that you're talking about, color, thickness, placement of the knot. What do we know about what information they record? Yeah, it was things like weather, census data, and even tax records. Okay, but so tax records... That is interesting because one thing we talked about in the episode that I was super interested in is the fact that the Inca Empire did not use money. Yeah, taxes. You think money, right? I pay the government this amount every year and that's all fine and good. Uh, But like you said, the Inca had no money. Uh, Millions and millions of people lived in this huge region in relative harmony without any kind of currency, which I think is kind of crazy to think about today. But if you lived under the Inca... Taxes were paid mainly through crops and other fine goods and then also labor. Okay, so how does that work? How do you pay your taxes in labor? It was this whole idea uh, I had researched about called the mita, which is basically this idea of mandatory service to one's community and one's government. So for a certain number of days out of the year, Inca citizens were required to perform public service. What counted as public service? What was it? Well, it reminded me of something like FDR's New Deal program, when he put people to work across the country through the Works Progress Administration, except it was just a part of life for the Inca, not this temporary economic solution. Women might have been expected to help prepare food for ceremonial feasts, or brew chicha, this kind of beer, or weave these very intricate textiles. Men could serve in the military, they could work in state-owned farms, and maybe most importantly, they could help build the Inca's famously vast network of roads. Right, 25,000 miles of roads, we learned in this episode. Right, and they went across all kinds of terrain. You have deserts, you have mountains, and everything in between. And so on those roads, as the Inca built their empire, as I recall, that was a place where we had all of the cultural elements that we've been talking about in this episode. They all kind of came together. 
Let's say, for example, a small village has just been incorporated into the empire, right? And they're not part of the Inca ethnicity, and they need to prove their loyalty by performing their public service, their mita. Mm -hmm. And they would have done this by linking the nearby Inca road system to their village. And in order to record that that obligation has been fulfilled, that would be recorded on the quipu that we discussed. A quipu. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, it all ties together. And then there were these runners called chasqui that were employed by the government who would literally carry the quipu over their shoulder and run on the road. When you say runner and run, do you mean like they would run across 25,000 miles of road? Is that the system? Yeah, kind of literally, yeah. I mean, obviously it was kind of a relay system. You know, nobody's running 25,000 miles, but the runners would run these huge distances, kipu in hand, and hand it off over and over again until they would reach these huge administrative centers that the government had built to record all this information and make sure everyone was up to date on their taxes. It is amazing to me that the Inca had this whole system for paying taxes in labor and that I knew nothing about it. It's crazy. Right. And I think that's probably the most important takeaway from this episode, at least for me. Like, I majored in American history, and I don't think I took a class that covered America before Columbus got there, right? Mm. So I'd say if you like history, go out and read about something that you might not already like or know about, you know? I like baseball, so I read a lot of baseball history books, but I also discovered in doing this episode that I love Inca history. Wow. Baseball, the Inca, what comes next for Ben? We will see in season two. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, Sally. Last up, we have our researcher, Emma. Hello, Emma. Hi. Emma, you are behind the scenes on so many of our episodes, doing tons of research, finding all the facts. And I understand you have something a little different for us, sort of a lightning round. You have brought us three of the most interesting facts that we left on the cutting room floor this season. So hit me with them. What is the first one? So the first one is kind of surprising, but um, Alexander Hamilton, who we talked about in the episode America's First Sex Scandal, he was actually a huge child labor guy. What? He really supported the idea of putting small children in mines, mills, factories, and such to really kickstart the industrialization of America. Oh my gosh, but wasn't Alexander Hamilton like champion of the poor, charismatic, great guy? Yeah, so it's kind of, I think it's a complicated answer. Um, like most things, when you think about child labor from today's standards, obviously that's a huge like red flag, no. <laughs> but from the world of the 18th century, it was just a very different understanding of what childhood was. You know, like kids had jobs. Alexander Hamilton himself started working from the age of 12. So for him, I think it was just a part of life. But he kind of just took it that one step farther because he actually said that it rendered them more useful and that he suggested in this report he wrote about manufacturing that children who would otherwise be idle, they could perhaps, he suggested, become a form of cheap labor. So he just saw the convenience of it. Wow. Okay. So a different take on a favorite founding father. What else you got for me, Emma? Dillinger. Um, we talk about John Dillinger, yeah, in Public Enemy Number 1. He was a famous bank robber. Yes, he was. And what I find is a lot of the time there are these people who have this mythology about them, right? And this legend of what they did. And usually when you're actually doing the research, you find out it's not really all that it's cracked up to be. But with Dillinger, it was a little bit different. It was all it's cracked up to be. Oh, 100%. Um, okay, so what amazing facts about Dillinger got left out? 
in the episode, we talk about how he had this move of like leaping across the counter and making this dramatic entrance to get closer to the vault. But what we don't really talk about is that to gain access, this gang would kind of dress up. They would be the film crew coming in for something, or they would dress up as alarm representatives trying to sell alarm systems to the bank. So they're just in costume going into these banks. Yeah, absolutely. It was a whole big charade. Wow, amazing. Dillinger, even better than the movies. (laughs) Okay, what's our third fact, Emma? So our last one is Fannie Lou Hamer, and we talk about her in the Freedom Summer episode. In the episode, we highlight this moment she has at the Democratic National Convention, and she gives this impassioned speech, and Lyndon Johnson tries to cut it off. But it ends up airing repeatedly on the local news stations. So in the episode, we kind of end right after her speech, but a lot of her legacy really takes place after that moment. And she has a lot of things between 1964 and 1971 that's putting her in the public eye, and she's breaking a lot of barriers politically, and she goes on to actually found the National Women's Political Caucus— But in the background, she's doing a lot of things that make her this incredible leader in her community. In 1969, she started the Freedom Farm Co-op. And through the assistance of donors, someone that was a former sharecropper herself ended up purchasing 640 acres of land. And what she did with this land um, is she actually sold it to Black Americans so that they could farm their own land. And it actually ended up helping around 1,500 families that generationally would have been at the mercy of white landowners. And then separate from that, she also single-handedly ensured that 200 units of low-income housing was built in Mississippi. So it's just really incredible the things that she was able to accomplish. Emma, bringing us home. Thank you so much for those facts and for all your research on the show. Thank you. There you have it. The best of season one as told by our producers. We will be back next week with season two and a very special surprise guest. Stay tuned. We'll see you then. Great. There's just a plane going over, so I'll just get one more after it. All right. Now the thing is back. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a seven-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by all of us. Me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn. Julie McGruder. Ben Dickstein. And Emma Fredericks. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosado. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.